There we go. Now we're now we're really operational, huh? Are both sides one and two unmuted now? Okay. And so you want to repeat the thumb? Okay. There we go. And everything's fine with you, Mr. Dave? Yes. Okay. Well, here we go then. Ready or not? March the 27th, 2022, lecture discussion number 168 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and Genesis 15. Okay, probably uh, useful to provide a synopsis uh, on last week's Leviticus 13, Leviticus 14, incursion. That seems to be a word of the day. I'm doing that on the assumption that everyone who endured Lecture 167 last week fell into torpidity relatively early into what I call the presentation. Uh, uh, by, uh, I almost said, I almost, almost said, I put the by. So I got to put a half of one. <sighs> Be sure to order your uh, personalized cliffside drool basket or bucket. You know, act now, right? Before they're gone. Only two sizes remain. Small and medium, extra large, sold out, you know. That would be expect that, wouldn't we here? I had yeah, call in the next five minutes. But you get the one with the chain. The gold chain. But I've had quite a few responses to last week. Uh John from Pennsylvania just wrote, Wow. <laughs> I hope that was a good wow. It might not have been. It might have been, oh, you got to be kidding. And I, I realized how that was last week. The intent of uh, Lecture 167 last week, uh, as formulated by the HTRP. Uh, and I get a lot of letters. What is an HTRP? And I never answer them. I'm, I'm kidding. But uh, was to begin the process of solving the mystery of the Genesis 15 two birds. That's what we were doing last week, whether it was obvious or even had any relationship at all to that. That's the purpose. And specifically what I'm after here is the why question. Why did Abraham not cut those two birds in two as he did all the other animals? He was certainly directed to perform that for the heifer, the goat, and the ram by the Lord God Almighty himself. Genesis 15.9. And you can see right there, clearly I'm advancing the position that none of Genesis 15, 9 through 19 was Abraham acting unilaterally. In other words, duplicating ancient covenant practices of pagan, pagan cultures. He was not doing that. He was told to do all of that by God. God is ordering this, um, all of it, both as a direct command as well as a sequential positioning element that's in it. And it has nothing to do with anybody else ever. In fact, if you want to make the case that the pagan structures took their idea from what happened with Abraham, that I'll grant you. But God is not copying them. You'll see all the time, everywhere, in all these commentaries, God stepped down to Abraham. He lowered himself to something Abraham could understand. And that's what Genesis 15 is all about. And that can't be the case. And I don't believe it is. So to restate that a bit, the creator God of all things is specifying the sacrificing of his choice of animal. He chose the animal and he put them in a precise sequence, an order. All of Genesis 15, 9 through 19 follows an exacting pattern, one that God really established at Genesis 3.21. When you get that understood, when you realize 
than this. Genesis 3.21, that's what's happening here. And obviously Genesis 3.21, that's the blood covering of Adam and Eve. That is the first time animals were slain. So we have to go back there. They're the substrative actions of the Elohim that are now being further revealed. You have to look at Genesis 15 as adding more information to Genesis 3.21. Or if you wish, you can do the inverse. 3.21 will tell you what's going on in Genesis 15, 9 through 19. And I've long held the opinion that holds to Revelation 13.8. What's that? Well, that's the lamb slain. The lamb slain before time was installed, before God revealed time to his creation. That includes the, the angelic hosts. Uh, the lamb slain before time. Time is a concept of consciousness and God had not revealed it and, and, and before the lamb was slain. So, and I think, obviously, Revelation 13.8, the lamb slain before time, is in concert with the Passover lamb slain, Exodus 12.5-7. So those two lambs are to be studied together. They, they line up and they feather into each other. And also Revelation 21.22-27, all of those lend evidences that the blood coverings of Genesis 3.21 were lambs. They were sacrificed lambs. And I'm aware of the contravening positions out there. But for me, when I read the Bible, as I, when I read the Bible, it is the Lamb's book of life. It isn't the elephant's book of life or or some other animal. It's the Lamb. That's the symbol that He has used for Himself. And I'm saying to you that it goes back to Genesis 3.21. So I'm assigning those to be lambs. That the blood coverings of Genesis 3.21 were also lambs. Sacrificed lambs. And, I, and again, I got the, the bride of the lamb is uh, Revelation 21.9. Christ is the lamb slain. Those collectively, and there's others, they lead me to conclude again, to repeat this as much as I can. Genesis 3.21 is also slain lambs. Now, I assume that there were two. Because there are two coverings. Anyway, at Genesis 3.21, God begins this portrait that starts to answer Abraham's 15.8 question. Lord God, how shall I know? How shall I know that I will inherit eternal life? Salvation unto eternal life. I want to know that I... Will those? Are, that's a fantastic statement. It's incredible, actually. God's response builds then on Genesis three twenty one, because what did He do at three twenty one to cover Adam and Eve? He had He covered them with blood, blood coverings, skin and blood. So what's He say at Genesis fifteen? He says, "Take me." He could have said the same thing to Adam and Eve. Take me there. Take me here. They obviously, like I said, feathered together. The direct link to Genesis 3.21 from 15, 9 through 19. And once we have Genesis 3.21 in place, the obvious questions now become obvious. For example, why is the three-year-old heifer first? Why isn't it third? Why isn't it seventh? 
Why is the first thing that he wants Abraham to take is a three-year-old heifer? As we covered last Sunday, Numbers 19 starts saying, contains the answer to that question. Good luck. Because that's the ashes of the red heifer, right? It's, it is really, it's required that Numbers 19 be fully understood in order to get through all of this, at least to a level of competence um, of some kind. You have to see some competence there. I recognize that fully is a relative term. I shouldn't really use it. Um, I use it because it's just easy to, but I probably it's not advisable to apply fully to any passage of Scripture. You'll never fully understand Scripture anywhere, anyhow, uh, until he writes it on inside of us. Uh, since for now, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we see dimly, and I've always wondered who dimly was. I, I think he's a character in uh, the uh, Lord of the Rings, right? Dimly? I think so, too. I'm pretty sure. We see dimly. There is. Anyway, the rabbinic traditions are of interest and should be considered. But uh, when you're going to consider and look at the, at the uh, commentary, essentially, that was formulated by the Jewish religious hierarchy, keep in mind they are often oral traditions. And, of course, they are not in the Bible. They're not in the biblical text. And if you have the position that the Bible is wholly inspired by God himself, the Holy Spirit has inspired it, and every single word, jot and tittle, has been uh, accepted by God himself, then you look at the fact that the oral traditions of the rabbis, of the uh, rabbinic scholars, are not in the biblical text. And I should say usually. Uh, so you have to be concerned about that. In addition, oral traditions are oral Haha, ha, I know. How, how, how much are we paying this guy to come up with stuff like that? Oral traditions are oral. How does he do it? I, I know. Okay. Serious for a moment, only a moment. Oral traditions, no matter the religious standing and concern for accuracy of those who cherish and instruct those oral traditions based on the oral traditions, they are nonetheless subject to the same unreliability of all oral traditions. So don't fall in love with them is what I'm trying to say. So when you start to look at them, and we're about to here in a second, realize the inherent disclamation that associates to oral traditions. Uh, And to clarify that a bit, be interested in them. They're very interesting and they're quite valuable. Be studious, but be wary of them. For example, the rabbinical Jewish position on the red heifer is that the hooves must be red. The red heifer must be totally red. Every hair. It can have no blemishes, no defects. Absolute red, absolute perfect redness. That's the Jewish rabbinical tradition. And I believe this requirement is correct. The take me aspect of Genesis 15.9 actually necessitates that the rabbinical position be true because the take me represents who? That's Christ. He's the me in that sentence. And he says, take a three-year-old heifer. And we know that's a red heifer. We know that because of number 19. So that has to be a perfect red heifer. What's the obvious question? Now, where did he get the red heifer? Oh, well, God could find one. He brought a perfect red heifer to Abraham. I think that any other position will be discarded. Christ is the, is the take me. The red heifer is a portrait of Jesus Christ who is perfect. He is 
Perfect red, absolute red. He is without blemish, without sin. It is Christ's blood that purifies from sin and death. And the red heifer personifies that, represents that. Now another rabbinical tradition dictates that the sacrificed red heifer's ashes must be... Now remember, from last week, if you listened to last week, if you have contact with death, you have to be purified by the ashes of the red heifer. Also, purification of the, of the priesthood is required by the ashes of the red, red heifer. So it's a contact with dead purification ceremony is the red heifer's ashes. And the, the, other, the second rabbinical tradition says that the sacrificed red heifer's ashes must be burned until, until excuse me, already time for water. You have to burn the ashes of the red heifer until they are pure white. Does that sound familiar? That's Leviticus 13 and 14, right? Have to be pure white before they can be mixed. Remember, they are mixed with the pure living water. That is the running water aspect again. It also is a Leviticus 14 element. <coughs> so we see Leviticus 14 and Numbers 19 come together. So before the water, the pure living waters can become the waters of purification, they have to be mixed with the pure white ashes of the red heifer. How many red heifers have they had? They will say to you, nine. We've had nine red heifers. I don't think so. I think there's only been one. That was the one that Abraham had. Now, they'll argue, they'll say, well, we've got, you know, they, they passed, some have passed inspection. I won't necessarily disagree with that. But I think there's only been one red heifer because obviously it's a portrait of Christ. The ashes of the red heifer are where? Do we know? They're in the Ark of the Covenant. So if we find the Ark of the Covenant, we find the ashes of the red heifer, which would be a spectacular thing. So, the pure white as snow ashes, I submit, is consistent with Leviticus 13, 12 through 17. The pure white as snow mystery of leprosy, which is, a, which is concurrent with the second of the three signs of Moses. And that's Exodus 3, 6, where um, Moses has a sign of his own hand as leprosy. Um, and Miriam, of course, goes white as snow leprosy. Numbers 12, uh, 9 through 10. And when Miriam went white as snow leprosy, we have to look at why that happened. Why does Moses have a sign that his hand is leprous and then not leprous? What does that sign mean? Clearly, that's going to tell us something about the ashes of the red heifer. And if we know something about the ashes of the red heifer, then we'll know something about Leviticus 14 and 13. If we know something about Leviticus 14 and 13, which has two birds, we will know about Genesis 15, which has... Two birds. See how easy this is? Got it? Nobody's got it. I know. Nobody's got it. We could pretend we've got it, but we don't really have it. When the pillar of cloud, Miriam becomes white as snow when the pillar of cloud departs. That's an important piece of information because of Miriam's attack on the office of Moses. Miriam decides to attack Moses. Now, there's evidence in the rabbinical traditions, as you might be aware, that Miriam was one of the ones that prepared the little basket, the Ark of Moses, to save Moses. So his sister is involved in that process that kept that, that sent him into the kingdom of Pharaoh. So 
It's not in the Bible. But it seems likely, doesn't it? So why is she attacking Moses? Because she's attacking the office of Moses and the fact that Moses is in that office. Only Moses has met with God face to face. Deuteronomy 34.10. Only Moses. Only Moses was a type of Christ. Deuteronomy 18.15. He's specified as a type of Christ and the only one to have seen God face to face. And she's attacking him. Miriam claimed that she had equality with Moses and doing that results in the pillar of cloud leaving the tabernacle. So as soon as Miriam begins this uh, usurpation, the pillar of cloud leaves the tabernacle or the tent of Moses. And an important uh, theological principle emerges here now. God himself chooses his prophets. You don't get to self Present yourself. You don't get to choose yourself, which is what goes on today all over this country. Somebody says, I'm a prophet now. Five people he's paid to say it all say, yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah, okay. I've actually been in services where some guy came up from California and pointed at the pastor and said, I think you're a prophet. And the pastor goes, yes, I am a prophet. No, you're not. God chooses you. And all you have to do is see what he does in the Old Testament with regard to prophets. How he chooses them and how do they know they're prophets? They're not guessing. They know. Back to know. Nobody has to come up to you and say, hey, I I think you're a prophet. You know. You don't need validation from anybody. (sighs) Am I getting, am am I starting to rant? Okay, I will calm down. God himself chooses his prophets, not Miriam, not Korah. God gives to Christ his apostles, which is a triune process. Uh, Be very careful when you start to look at that. John 17, 10 through 12, John 18, 9. John 18, 9, it says the you and the me and the I are all capitalized by the translators and they're absolutely right about that. It says of those whom you capitalized gave me capitalized, I have lost none capitalized. That is God talking to God. They both know they're God. All three know that they're God at all times. It can't be anything but God through all time. Anyhow, Miriam also, what happened to Miriam reflects back to Exodus 23 through 4, Exodus 20, 26. Those are the first and second commandments and the law of the altar. You could throw in the strange fire of Nadab and Abihu. First day on the job. Just got the uniforms. They mixed strange fire. Both dead. The very same thing. Miriam is obviously mixing some horrifying doctrine that she can choose herself to be a prophet. And God leaves the tabernacle and turns her into white as snow leprosy. And that helps us because we're in Leviticus 13 and 14, which is about leprosy. So therefore, the two birds are about leprosy, as we know. So the two birds in Genesis 15 have to have something to do with leprosy. They do, obviously. Also, you've got uh, Ezekiel 13, 1 through 8, and Ezekiel 13, 17 through 23. Those are amazing. 
They say this, the woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. They have envisioned futility and false divination, saying, thus says the Lord. But the Lord says, I have not spoken. If I had a dollar for every time somebody said, thus says the Lord, and quoted some movie, I would have the best motor home in Alaska. Thus says the Lord. They'll stand up. Thus says the Lord. And the God has not spoken. And they just rattle on and rattle on a bunch of nonsense until a word salad that finally means they get exhausted and they stop. That is not God speaking. That is man speaking. And you need to know the difference. Miriam wished to be seen as an equal to Moses, but the Lord God had not spoken that. Oops. And the sign of him having not spoken through Miriam was leprosy, white as snow leprosy. Let that be a warning. God himself, Numbers 12, 6 through 8, explains to Aaron and Miriam the Deuteronomy 18, 15 significance of Moses. Moses is the prophet. He is the the type of the great prophet. He is the type of Christ. Not Miriam. Aaron has a typology as the high priest, but Moses is set aside. Moses is unlike unlike any other prophet. God speaks to Moses face to face, even plainly, it says in the Bible, not in dark sayings. In other words, ah, Moses has a relationship that no one else has had. He does not speak to him in dark sayings. Moses sees the form of God. Moses then, that means what? He saw Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the form of the Lord. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He is the invisible made visible. And Miriam speaks against Moses because Moses did what? What was the great sin of Moses? Are you familiar with this? Why did Miriam decide she's going to take over? I'm pushing you out. I'm taking over. Because Moses married a Gentile Ethiopian woman. And Miriam says, no, you're not. It's me. And God says, you're all leprous. Obviously, God won. What did, what did, uh, obviously, God intended something here. He wanted Moses to do something. What did he want Moses to do? He wanted Moses to marry a Gentile Ethiopian woman. That's obvious because as soon as Miriam attacks him, white as snow, leprosy. Read Numbers 12, 6 through 9. God asked Miriam and Aaron, Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Let me rephrase. Which just is another way of saying that. I thought it, but I said, let me rephrase. So I get credit. But I said that twice. So I thought it twice. Why then were you not afraid to attack for the purposes of overthrowing and supplanting my servant Moses? This is a public rebellion. Why? Why did Miriam attempt to overthrow Moses? And what happens is the pillar of cloud departs as soon as I stop doing that too. 
the pillar of cloud, boom, is gone. It's instantaneous. Miriam is then white as snow as leprous. How are things going for Miriam? The pillar of cloud leaves the tent of Moses and she's dead. Or about to be dead. She's white as snow, leprosy. We learned last week, white as snow, leprosy is final stage leprosy. She, and it says, Numbers twelve twelve. She became as one dead whose flesh is half consumed when she comes out of her mother's womb. That's now Miriam's condition. Not a good day. Moses, though, cries out. Why? They're trying to kill him. They're trying to overthrow him. If he's no longer protected, if if Miriam replaces him, what's his condition? What's his fate? But And Moses knows that. He cries out because he's... 1815 Deuteronomy, he prophet unto me. He cries out as the mediator between God and man. Deuteronomy 1815 being demonstrated. And he cries out for Miriam to be saved from imminent death because he recognizes that she is on the precipice of death and death in sin. She's being filled with sin and death. That is what final stage leprosy is. She is literally, if she were this cup of water, the water is being filled to the brim of the glass in leprosy. What was she thinking? And why wasn't she and Aaron afraid? They weren't afraid. They obviously weren't afraid because God said, why weren't you afraid? The point is, a point, Miriam rebels against the servant of God. Now we're in Mark 10.45, Isaiah 42.1-4, John 6.38, Luke 22.27, John 13, Philippians 2.6-7, and Matthew 12.17-21, because Jesus Christ is who? He's the servant of God. The form of the Lord, the God himself in the flesh, is the ultimate suffering servant of God which is another of the many titles and offices of Christ. And they thought, anybody can be this. Anybody can do this. Ain't so, man. And those aforementioned passages passages openly testify and definitively that Christ is the only servant of God. Matthew twelve seventeen. So you are rejecting whom God has presented as your Savior himself to take me, you are saying, nope, I'm going to do it myself. Not good news. That's where this law of the altar. Don't get on the law. Don't get on the altar because of your nakedness. There's no steps to the altar. You can't climb up there. Okay. Matthew 12, 17 through 21 includes Isaiah 49, 1 through 7 with Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Christ is the light to the Gentiles, Isaiah 49.6. Isaiah 42.1 is a great behold. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, my soul delights, Matthew 3.17. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. There we go. That is the third mystery of the 11 mysteries. The union of the Jews and the Gentiles in the body of Christ, Ephesians 3, 3 through 6. And I realize up to this point, everybody's going, what's going on here? 
how is the HDRP going to put this all in a nice little box with a bow on it? How's he going to do it? It's, it's going to take a miracle. He can't possibly do it. It's not possible. It's just a bunch of stuff, and we don't know what he's doing. Well, what I'm doing is trying to explain why he didn't cut the two birds in two. So who's at fault for that question? That's right, Mindy. We know that the Pharisees despise the Gentiles. That causes the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews throughout the world. They, they would not testify of the true God. So he said, well, I will. if you're not going to do it willingly, then I'm going to just disperse you throughout all of the Gentile world. And he has. And Isaiah 42.1 refers to Exodus 19.5-6, Israel at Mount Sinai, where God speaks to the nation. And he says, if they would obey his voice and keep his commandments, then they, Israel, would be a special treasure, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's what he says. What is a kingdom of priests? It's defined as the nation that brings the truth of the one God to the world. And Israel didn't do it. There's our diaspora again. Israel responded at the time, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Oh, there's that word again. I start to really like that word eventually. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brings this response to God. This is a marriage vow. And we go through that today. We, we replicated every marriage that I have ever done. I will. I do. I will do. Those are in the vows. Same as Israel. So this is a marriage vow, as you all know. It's part of the Hebrew marriage ceremony to the Lord. And ultimately, Israel's adultery results in a bill of divorcement, Deuteronomy 24.1, Jeremiah 3.6-10. And we end up in that condition. And anyway, God says this to Moses when he comes with this statement, this vow of Israel to God. Behold, I come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak to you. When he speaks to Moses, they can hear him. And again, Moses is unlike any other man, Jew, prophet, as Deuteronomy 18.15 establishes it. Thus we have Miriam's last stage white as snow leprosy. That's what caused it. To reject or to rebel against Jesus Christ is to be subjected, subjected, sorry, I can't read my own writing, is to be subjected to certain death, the second death. When it is the person of Christ being the target, then the second death is the penalty. Miriam was, had, has aligned herself, therefore, in essence, to the Revelation 27 through 9 re- rebellion of Satan and the Antichrist. For today, today's purpose is note the consequence to Miriam is her body is totally, completely, instantly infected with leprosy. Meaning we should be able to now glean additional information to the Leviticus 14 two-bird ceremony. And consequently, this would apply to the two birds of Genesis 15 and lead to the reasons that they were not cut in two. Something I've already said. But I said it again. Because that's the plan. Such is the plan. 
Now, I need to include that Miriam clearly demonstrates the nation of Israel's rejection of Christ at Matthew 12, 14 through 32, which is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy against the Spirit of God is a national sin committed by a religious rulership that was supported by the majority of the Jewish people. The blasphemy of the, in, of the Spirit falls upon a nation and never on individuals, and that's an important thing to know. I keep repeating these kinds of things just to make sure everybody gets at least some of it. Though it's not insignificant that Miriam was banished for seven days. She is representative. Okay, now let's adjust to a different avenue here for a while. Hopefully this will pull some of it together. And that includes why is the red heifer first of the seven pieces that compromise to take me? Because I got the red heifer, I got the female goat, I got the ram, I got a turtle dove, I got a young pigeon, I got the smoking fire pot furnace, and I got the flaming torch right light. That's the order, one through seven. Why is the red heifer first? We could add more questions, because why? We can always add more questions. That's the rule. Why is the cow female? Why isn't it a male cow, a bull? It's not a bull. It's a red heifer, by definition. Why? We're going to have to define woman now. Never mind. Oh, I couldn't stop myself, could I? Gosh. Good grief. The world has gone mad. (sighs) Why is the cow female? Why three years old? Why is the goat likewise female and three years old? Why is the ram three years old? The age of the turtle dove is not revealed. Why not? How young is the pigeon? Young is a relative term. You can make the case that I'm young. Not a very good case, but you can make it. Because it's a relative term. Perhaps you remember the why do angels rejoice when one sinner repents questions from lecture 165. Obviously, this question has Revelation 12, 7 through 12 ambience. That is the war in heaven. Why do the angels rejoice tells you something about the war in heaven in Revelation 12. The war in heaven that results from the casting out of the great dragon from heaven. And there's a bunch of questions right there. It says, uh, uh, you know, you have to ask immediately, he's thrown out of heaven. Why was Satan and his army, his demonic army, even given allowed full heavenly privileges and access? Why, is, why does Satan and the demonic realm have access to heaven? And we do. We know that because of Job 1 and Job 2. Why does God always allow this? He does. He always does. What is proved by this? Why is he long-suffering Satan in heaven? Because God is what? Long-suffering. Long is a term referencing what? Time. Why does he give Satan time is the question. And ultimately, that's where it boils down. No place was found in heaven any longer for Satan and his angels. Michael and the faithful angels fought against the demonic forces and drove them out. Where do we go now in the Bible? We have Satan and the angels uh, are the demons driven out of the garden of heaven, don't we? Notice how I conflated those two together. 
Michael and his faithful angels fought against the demonic forces and succeeded in driving them out finally and permanently from the heavenly estate. Why am I bringing this up with regard to the question, why do angels rejoice? Because up to this point, I believe warfare, and however you want to define it, had been continuous. I'm going to say it's kind of a stalemate condition, but there was Satan and his demons in heaven with all the faithful angels. How comfortable was that situation? So I think the stalemate condition was probably likely in their skirmishes. Revelation 7, uh, I'm sorry, 12, 7 through 12 describes now, though, a full-scale war, total war. This is brutal warfare, if you want to think of it that way. That uh, begs the question, huh? what ignited it? Why now? Why do we have a, a war now? A complete, complete hand-to-hand almost. A condition or event that's traceable to a cause. What's the cause of this? What ignited this? What event set the heavens ablaze like this? And the, uh, and the traditional position on, do you know, do you know, do you know, pretend? Oh, I had somebody say there's, 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 did I tell you this last week? Somebody uh, commented, uh, actually told somebody who called and talked to me about it. There's an audience here. He's speaking to an audience. It's not fair. They want to know how many people are here. And guess who the audience is? That's right. I should say, um, can we really call you an audience? Yeah, I guess we can. Okay. You have 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 multiplicity, don't you? You have responsibilities. Video, sound, and audience. Willingly or unwillingly, they're they're nonetheless involved in all of that. Again, what event set this off? What condition? This is a condition or event, and we've got to trace it to a cause. And the number one position is, of course, the abduction of the bride. Because of Jude 9. Yes, audience member. A captive audience is absolutely true. Anyway, Jude 9, hi Susie and Val Joe, who love Jude 9, and good for them. But we're in Jude 9 now. That's the, we, have, we have dead bodies of the saved will rise first, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, right? The dead shall rise first. The dead in Christ shall rise first. How many is that? And their bodies, right? Because the dead in Christ rise first. That's the body of those, the, the, not, not the spirit soul. How many is that? That's children and animals. Those alone would be billions. And that is a target-rich environment if everyone could ensue. Christ is essentially doing this. He's burying Satan and his demons in resurrection. There's so much resurrection, you can't even deal with it all. And so, would the forces of Michael mobilize to oppose the demons of Satan? What are the demons of Satan going to do with all those bodies going up? What are they going to try to do? Might I say, this now is obviously Genesis 15. Right? You got it? I can quit? Am I on time? Yeah. Let the record show that the audience members are not convinced that it's... uh, I have not quite yet got through my... This is huh and what? Huh? What? Okay. Well, 
let's just talk about it logically. Logically, if the resurrections of billions of the bodies of the dead materialize and Satan and his angels threaten and confront Michael and his angels at Jude 9 over one body, the body of Moses, Deuteronomy 34, 6, then it follows that billions of resurrected bodies would facilitate start a ferocious war, an assault and defense in the clouds and the air and into heaven, Thessalonians, First Thessalonians 4.17. It's fought in the clouds and the air and in heaven. So there's three theaters, if you want to think of it that way. So if they're going to fight over Moses' body, how much fighting are we going to have over billions of bodies? One might describe this event as the fulfillment or the antitype of Abraham's campaign against the vultures. And that's how we get to Genesis 15.11. Because what is Abraham doing at 1511? He's fighting the vultures over what? The, the, the bodies that will be resurrected. Of course, now that's my position. I think it's obvious that Genesis 15 is telling us that. Okay? Abraham wanted to know, and now we're getting to that mystery of the vultures, and uh, we don't have as much time this week to do it, so next week... Uh, oh. I'll pound away at that, but at least I got you started. Abraham wanted to know he would be eternally saved. Eternally saved, 15.8 Genesis. To repeat, the Apostle Thomas also wanted to know, a point, yea, a point, that I made in lecture number 165 as well. So I have Thomas and Abraham are doing the same thing. Uh, both Abraham and Thomas saw the resurrection of Christ. Abraham saw the portrait or the portrayal of it, and Thomas saw the person of Christ himself. Very important. That's why I repeated it. Christ, of course, is the first fruits of the resurrecting. First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty through twenty three. All resurrections unto life are dependent on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of them. First Corinthians fifteen twelve through nineteen. And hopefully I've conveyed the dominance of resurrection. That is at play here. Resurrection is ubiquitous in every direction, in every place in Scripture after Genesis 131. A point that I've hopefully made as well as I could. It's resurrection, it's resurrection, it's resurrection. Certainly all of all passages now, if I am right, that the whole thing is resurrection, 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 it's everywhere in the Bible after Genesis 131, then, and you make the case, of course, never mind, I won't do that yet. I almost gave something away. Whew, that was close. Almost ad-libbed an answer. Can't do that. But if resurrection, resurrection, resurrection is where we are, of all the passages in the Bible, Genesis 15 would be the one, wouldn't it? Testifying of resurrection. Unto eternal life in the new city of Jerusalem. Not just the fact of resurrection, but the means of resurrection. That upon whom resurrection unto life depends, the person. Jesus God. The take me is Jesus God. The, 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 the no is the question. How will I know that I will? How will I know that I will? I'm going to put wills on both sides of that just because I feel like it. That will is very important. The resurrection and the life, every animal at Genesis 15 testifies of the resurrection and the life. How? How? Even the vultures testify. 
How do they testify? Notice I said that Abraham wanted to know that he would be eternally saved, infinitively saved, infinite life as as Christ, as God defines life. How He wanted to know that he had infinity. I would be given infinite life. How can I know that? So, where in Genesis 15 is the truth of eternal secure salvation? Because it has to be there. It's got to be there. So where is it? As opposed to temporal, conditional, fragile salvation. Is there such a thing as temporal, conditional, fragile salvation? No. That's not salvation. But there are millions of people that think temporal, conditional, fragile salvation is salvation. It's not. It is a masquerade, an impersonation of salvation. But if, if, let Let me digress. This is your fault. If our salvation is unstable, because that's what it would be, based on our works, and they even they that believe this absolutely treat, teach that it is unstable. It can be lost at any moment. And, and if it's based on the law, then no one could ever know that they are they would inherit salvation. It can't be known. Genesis 15, 8. That renders Abraham's question completely vacant, unsound. If that question was unsound, what would God say? You can't know. But he doesn't say that. God actually answers Abraham's question with the take me and this entire tremendous amount of information. Thereby, he validates the question. He approves it. He says, that's a question I will answer. Which implies what? Eternal security. Abraham can Abraham can know. We can know. God, Genesis 15 would have to have this doctrine. Have to have it. Where else is it? Because that's not the only place it is. Genesis 15 does, as you would expect, address Abraham's question also at the vultures in the deep sleep. Those vultures, boy, they keep coming back. And they literally did keep coming back. The terror and the horror, the great terror, the great horror, and the great utter darkness. Here's a question on the the vultures. Why did the vultures get to come? They're allowed to come. Why? That's Job 1 and Job 2 again, isn't it? We're we're right back there. We're back to the long-suffering of God. Why does he even have vultures coming to, to do this? Why does Abraham have to drive them away? Why is there a war over the bodies? Oh, well, there's always a war over the bodies, apparently. It becomes prudent to once again, therefore, compose and advance a viable definition here. For example, what is the great terror and horror? Why is the great horror coupled with the utter darkness and the deep sleep? The deep sleep is solved in Genesis 2.21 because that's the deep sleep of Adam. I'm saying to you that the deep sleep of Abraham and the deep sleep of Adam have the same reason and the same result. What was the reason that Adam had a deep sleep? To bring forth the bride. What's the reason that Abraham has a deep sleep? Well, you can answer that really quickly. Somebody, I, I can hear people screaming at me out there. But once you put those two together and see how one resolves, you can say, well, that's the other one's going to resolve the same way. Not my, they may have 
differences. But I have how many deep sleeves? I have two. Well, there you go. I gave the answer away right there. One of them is to bring out the bride. What's the other choice, Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum? Okay. What is utter darkness? God's definition, please. Not your definition. God's definition, please. In other words, photonless, photon, photonless. I can barely say these words anymore. I'm getting so old. You should be able to add less to every word and nest to every word and nest to every word and still be able to do it, but I can't. Photon less is a word. It means not a single photon. Is that is that the kind of darkness or is it spiritual darkness or is it both? It's utter darkness. So what is the difference between utter spiritual darkness and photon less? Darkness. Yes, the, the chair recognizes somebody who pretends he's an audience member. A photonic. Oh my gosh. Why have you been waiting for that all these days? <laughs> Unphotonic, perhaps. Non-photonic. We could go all over, but we have all kinds of words now. <coughs> but maybe that made sense to someone. I can only hope. What is spiritual darkness? What is utter spiritual darkness? Is we gotta have to have to figure that out. What is the correct definition of the great terror? Because there is terror and utter darkness. Horror. Try to imagine that which would be the greatest horror for you. I realize the individualized element becomes prominent when I I put that in front of you. But for myself, I I've had this reoccurring dream for years where I'm immobilized. I'm essentially buried alive and I'm unable. I used to watch a show. I remember the show where somebody was on CSI, where somebody was put in a, uh, a he was buried in a coffin. It's a pretty common theme and, and you got to rescue him, get him out of there before he suffocates. Well, I can't watch those shows because I almost always have that nightmare. And so I turn them off. I, I, I have this great uh, terror of being essentially buried alive. And I used to wake up at when I didn't know I had uh, a, a congenital cardiac failure, I thought I was just having a lot of nightmares. But obviously I was going into uh, arrhythmia at night. And then I would have this dream that I'm suffocating. I had them all the time. I didn't realize what it was until I had heart surgery. But... Uh, I have that dream. I had that dream over and over and over again. It terrified me. And I'd get up and I'd come out here and I'd sit down. I didn't have an oximeter. I didn't have an EKG machine that I have now. I had no idea that my heart was probably in fibrillation. But it was. I know it was. Uh, I have all the elements of that understood. And I know what the symptoms are. But uh, anyway, I, was, I always have the same dream. I'm unable to speak or hear or see. I'm uncommunicative. I'm paralyzed though I'm fully conscious mentally. And, and, and this is a reality. This is a reality for people, the traumatically brain injured, the grievously injured, those with neurological pathogenesis. This is what they're going through. Some people have been in these kinds of uh, comatose states for years. And they have now the MRI capability to find out if the brain is active. And guess what? The brain is active. Uh, there's something called the Glasgow Comatose Scale. 
I would obviously want to know about that, right? So I do. Glasgow, Glasgow, comatose scale. It's applied to those patients. Anyway, my mother endured this uh, as the end of her uh, 15-year Alzheimer condition came. She was Alzheimeric for uh, 15 years. And um, my individualized great terror relates to levels one through five on the Glasgow comatose scale. Fifteen is is um, being normal cognitive function. And uh, as of yet, no one has ever assigned to me a normal con- con- cognitive function state. No one has ever done that. I don't expect it. No documentation announcing normal has ever been diagnosed with respect to me. Oh, my goodness. Lori is so fast. Doggone it. That's her job. It is her job, but I should I should have that phone right here. I get ten minutes of comedy, I guarantee it. <laughs> I do not anticipate any reversal or development otherwise uh, in the near future with regard to normal cognitive state. Normal, after all, is a relative term. Okay. Where was I? Luke 15.10 Why do angels rejoice when one sinner repents? I see the hands. This is the parable of the lost coin. Jesus Christ himself, the creator of all things. Again, Colossians 1.15-18 If all you get from me is Colossians 1.15-18 and John 1.1-4 Every time I do a lecture, I have succeeded. I'll be thrilled. He's the one who created the angels. He created all angels. He reveals, he declares, he proclaims that angels, the faithful angels, celebrate with joy over every unbeliever who comes to belief. That's a powerful statement. Oops. Oops, we have problems now in a a huge theological sector. They've never realized that Christ created the angels and the angels rejoice over the repenting of one sinner. That's incredible. Luke 15.10, Christ describes the rejoicing when a woman who had ten silver coins. If you had ten silver coins now, buy food. Okay. He describes the rejoicing when a woman who had ten silver coins, having lost one, lights a lamp. Okay. Where are we now in the Bible? She lights a lamp. So she's in darkness, obviously. She sweeps her house. She searches painstakingly until she finds the one lost silver coin. Got it. And then when she has found that lost silver coin, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and they all glory with her. That's the parable. And Christ says that's the angels. That's what the angels do. Look what the angels do. They light a light lamp, they sweep, they search painstakingly, they find that one lost silver coin and they get all the other angels together and they celebrate. Likewise, Jesus said, is the faithful angels when one sinner repents from his unbelief. (coughs) Excuse me. Luke 15.10 certainly must be associative to Revelation 12. It's got to be. What's Revelation 12 again? That's the war. The full scope, hand-to-hand, sword-to-sword, war of the angels because of Revelation 12.12. Great rejoicing in the ranks of the faithful angels when the dragon and his demons are never again seen in heaven. They're gone. They drove them out. And it was a, a war. Lots of questions to deal with here now. Do 
Like a quick shallow example. Do angels feel pain? How many kinds of pains do we have? We have sorrow and we have physical pain. Do angels feel either of those? Obviously they feel sorrow. Do they feel physical pain? Do they draw and use swords? The angel of the Lord, Joshua has a sword. Joshua 5.13. Numbers 22.31. 1 Corinthians 21.16. So Christ has a sword. Did he give a sword? And he has one in his hand. Draws a sword. Michael stands up. Does he stand up with a sword? They have horses. 2 Kings 6.17. And chariots of war. Do they have swords? Somebody's commenting. It's a dog. He loves this. I can tell by the shrieking delight. Okay. (laughs) Is there casualties? If I'm in a war, do I have killed and wounded? What other temporary, I'm sorry, what other weaponry do they they possess? I I probably should should shut that window, huh? Are we okay? Obviously, the faithful angels have access to the great physician himself, Matthew 9.12. So their mass unit is unbelievable. So they don't have a problem. But I want to know how much physical force goes on between angels and demons. Is it pushing? Is it fight? How, what, is it punching each other? Can they knock each other down? What are we looking at? What is the, what is the capability of the intermediate state? How much physical capability do the angels have? How much physical capability do those who have gone before us in the intermediate state have? Are they in a physical condition? Semi-physical condition? I'm not saying a physical body. They don't have their body. But what capability do they have? Anyway, the angels have great rejoicing when they have driven Satan out of heaven and great rejoicing when one sinner is saved. So I have angels rejoicing in both of those situations. I submit the obvious relationship between Luke 15.10 and Revelation 12.12 is obvious. Equally obvious is Matthew 18.10. Take heed that you do not, you knew, ah, da, da. take heed that you do not despise one of these little children. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father. Just like Moses, who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. There's your woman in the coin again. So there you go. Why do angels rejoice? Why do they have the capability to rejoice? Because that's the answer. They rejoice because they can rejoice. How did they get the ability to rejoice? What is rejoicing? Angels demonstrate joy, rejoicing, Now, deliberate on the implications of joy and rejoicing and gladness and jubilance. What causes joy? What do you have to have in order to have joy? If superdetermination model, if that model is correct, then rejoicing is misguided, it's delusionary, believing something to be true in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, the superdeterminists will say to you and me. Obviously, angels believe and respond in celebratory joy when one sinner repents because they believe the sinner is exercising a free will contributive action. Why would you rejoice otherwise? If that free will doesn't, if that, that sinner doesn't have any impact, then why do I rejoice? If it's super determined, if it's super determined, then what's the point of rejoicing? Oh, just another guy that's been predestined to be saved. But they don't behave that way. They celebrate. So that tells me something about them. Why are you thinking they're stupid? Because that's your choice. If you're a super determinist, you think they're stupid. You think they're delusion. 
They're in a state of delusion. They're celebrating something that is predetermined. I don't think that. Where did they get their joy from? Who gave it to them? Who gave them that capability? Matthew 18.10 Every child has an assigned angel. How invested in that child is the said specified angel? How long does that angel stay with that child? Unto death, I think, is the obvious answer. Angels are watchers. Psalm 9, 91, 11 through 12. Hebrews 1, 14. Hebrews 13, 2. Psalm 103, 19 through 22. They have duties. I submit that they are beyond overjoyed when their child to whom they are responsible chooses faith in Christ. And Christ says that is so. When they choose resurrection unto life. When they believe. And all the friends and neighbors angels, when when that happens, they all come together and they celebrate with the angel who found the lost coin. The lost coin has been found. And somewhere in Genesis 15 is free will belief. Where do you suppose it is? It's there. Got to be there, right? If the angels think we've got it, and we think we've got it, if, if Christ gave the angels the ability to freely choose to celebrate, then did he give it to us? Did he give it to the animal kingdoms? Did he only do it to the angels? Not, they'll, they'll tell you that. Animals got nothing. We got nothing. Angels got free will because of the demonic. He, did he, otherwise, you have him predestining Satan's sin, right? Oops. Okay. Next week, a thousand more questions. I'm serious. I've already written them all down. It's crazy.